Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. Today I'm doing a mini episode on what I think might be the most important question in a psychiatric visit. But before I start with that, I wanted to digress a little bit and talk more about ketamine. I've been thinking a lot about when and how ketamine gets difficult. And I think I'm seeing ketamine break down into four predictable stages where people might struggle. The first one, which I've mentioned on the podcast before, I would describe that as reaching escape velocity. So in the early minutes of the treatment, as the body, the ego, time is starting to dissolve, for some people, that is a really discombobulating experience and almost feels like a small death. And it doesn't last long, maybe two to four or five minutes, but that can be scary for people until they are fully in the dissociative experience of ketamine. The second stage where I often see ketamine get difficult is what I call re-entry. And that's where people are coming out of the fully dissociated ketamine matrix and coming back into their body, back into the room, back into their ego. And that's actually difficult for a different reason for some people. It's not about a fear of loss of control like the reaching escape velocity. It's actually the opposite. I've had people, as they're coming back into the now, start to cry, start to say no, no, and thrash. And I've had people punch themselves and scratch themselves and and, and try to fling themselves out of the chair. And in the first you know, maybe 10, 15 times this happened, I thought, what is going wrong? Is this some kind of ketamine effect? But as I started to interview people, what they described was the the deep peace, the, the bodilessness, egolessness of the deep ketamine experience was so welcome in amidst their incredibly depressed and hopeless and stressed out lives that coming back into their body felt like like a punishment, like they were coming back into this dreaded place that they didn't want to be. And so that was what I was seeing with the crying and punching and screaming and scratching. So for some people, that, that can be a difficult stage. The third stage that can be very difficult, and this I probably only see this maybe one out of every, maybe one out of every 50 sessions, is where... We're at a point where the ketamine session should be quote-unquote over, should be metabolized, they should be back in their body and ego. And then they start having terrible catharsis, sobbing, crying, writhing, pseudo-seizures, moaning, screaming, no, no, again, sometimes hitting themselves. And what I've come to realize that is, and again, I wouldn't have known this except for Saj Rasvi, who teaches me a lot of things, this is almost surely what I've just coined as a dissociative shatter. So people are so deeply numbed and their trauma is so hardened away that it seems untouchable until you get to high-dose fully dissociative ketamine and then sometimes it just cracks it open and there's this trauma release that, that looks really scary but actually is super cathartic. And again, I see this maybe maybe once a month, but it's actually a great sign because when I see it, I think, okay, this person had some really terrible trauma that was fueling depression and the the high-dose ketamine session has released that. 
The fourth stage where ketamine can get difficult is during the one to four days post-session. And this we typically see in people with complex PTSD and you know, severe depression. So what happens is people come in and do the treatment, may go fine, smoothly, and then people text me, check in with me in the days after the session, and they report often that they've gotten worse. And again, when this first started happening three years ago, I, I thought, wow, maybe ketamine can make people worse. But now I've realized it does make some people worse for a short period of time, and that's, again, people with complex PTSD. But the typical course is maybe one to two, perhaps three days of of worsening, of more, maybe even more suicidality, hopelessness, and then it's like a switch flips and people are better. And um, I typically have people check in with me daily after their ketamine sessions, at least by text. And so I've been able to track this in people. And um, again, it's usually a sign, a positive sign. It's a strange thing to tell someone, but say, if you actually get worse for a day or two or three after, that probably means that you got some buried trauma and that that's going to clear at least temporarily and then your depression's going to lift. So again, that's something I've been thinking a lot about these four stages of ketamine getting difficult, possibly during escape velocity, re-entry, the period after the ketamine should be over, which I call the dissociative shatter, and then the post-session processing in one to four days afterwards. I really hope you enjoy this mini episode. And if you have comments or thoughts, we always love to hear from you. Probably the best ways to get in touch with us are either through the website, craigheacockmd.com, or through the Twitter feed at BFTAPod. I've often thought that if I could ask my patients only one question during a session. It would be, what time are you getting up in the morning? For this one question has profound implications for a patient's mood and energy, their cognitive functioning, interpersonal relationships, employability, and just the overall sense of belonging and connection to the greater human society. Sleep and mood are inextricably linked. Now, we humans are diurnal or daytime mammals. We feel and function best when we act in concert with our biological nature. And all diurnal mammals become active in the period just before or after sunrise. The onset of light starts a complex neurobiological cascade that allows us to thrive. For humans to function optimally, we too need to be attuned to our evolutionary programming. All of our crucial hormone cycles are tied to the sleep-wake cycle. Moreover, our sleep architecture, which is the complex interplay between non-REM and REM sleep, is directly tied to the circadian rhythm. Sleep too long in the morning, and you've thrown your circadian rhythm and hormones out of whack, including melatonin and testosterone, estrogen, cortisol, growth hormone, Altering the circadian rhythm also deranges sleep architecture, this symphony of non-REM and REM sleep, which then leads to numerous medical and psychiatric consequences. I have a patient who struggles with chronic and severe depression, who almost always feels much better when he goes hunting. 
I've known him to be nearly hopelessly depressed. Then go on a multi-day hunting trip and return to tell me how much better he felt, how his depression had lifted, how he was able to be in the moment and feel the beauty and the wonder of nature. And what changes on those hunting trips? Well, he goes to bed shortly after dark, wakes up at sunrise, spends his days outside in nature, walking, listening, basically being a diurnal mammal in sync with his biological wiring. But then, upon returning home, he falls back into the 21st century patterns of artificial lighting, poor quality sleep, and thus a delayed sleep cycle, as well as the incessant demands of our hyper-scheduled cyber lives, our toxic personal narratives, unhealthy comparisons to others, and, no surprise, his depression and anticipatory dread return. Pretending to be a nocturnal animal is medically, psychologically, and psychiatrically dangerous. Whether you work the night shift or just stay up most of the night, this significantly can increase the risk of developing various cancers, having an early heart attack, developing obesity or diabetes, falling into substance abuse and addiction, and, most relevant to this episode, daytime heavy sleep greatly increases the risk of triggering or exacerbating depression. What does it feel like to sleep too late in the morning? If you wake up three hours later than a healthy diurnal mammal, which equates to maybe three to four hours after sunrise, then you are, for all intents and purposes, three to four hours jet-lagged. And what does jet-lag feel like? It feels like irritability, brain fog, lack of emotional resilience, fatigue. And what do people commonly report when they wake up in the mid to late morning? Irritability, brain fog, lack of emotional resilience, and fatigue. Now, interestingly, getting a healthy number of hours of sleep doesn't make up for this hormonal and sleep architecture disruption. Now, you sleep eight hours, get up by 8 a.m., you have a pretty good chance of feeling and functioning well for the rest of the day. But sleep eight hours from 2 a.m. to 10 a.m., and you will experience some measure of irritability, brain fog, lack of emotional resilience, and fatigue. Sleep and mood are so interdependent that it is basically impossible to have clinically significant depression or bipolar mood disorder and not have sleep disturbance. And not surprisingly, when patients sleep in too late, they're almost always on the depressed or fatigued end. In contrast with waking up hours before sunrise, which typically points to anxiety, substance withdrawal, and or manic symptoms. Bipolar disorder, which is a type of mood disorder, might also be thought of as a kind of sleep disorder. It is often confused with borderline personality disorder, but there's a simple way to quickly differentiate them. Patients with bipolar disorder have periods of hypersomnia or oversleeping, which alternate with periods of insomnia or decreased sleep need. Most patients with borderline personality disorder, however, have no meaningful sleep disruption unless they have serious trauma history or perhaps some complicating medical issues. Daytime sleeping not only wrecks people mentally, emotionally, and physically, it makes meaningful connection with others much more difficult. When I hear patients report that they are waking up in the afternoon, 
I begin to suspect that they are consciously or unconsciously deciding to hide out from the world. Sleeping through much of the day takes traditional work and school hours off the plate, which means that there's a relatively short window of time in the afternoon and evening to accomplish the tasks of adulthood, including work and chores, self-care, maintaining relationships, caring for others. An afternoon wake-up time is highly correlated with depression, agoraphobia, addiction, existential despair, loneliness, nihilism. It puts you out of sync with the rest of your species, which, unfortunately, is exactly why many people maintain this terribly unhealthy pattern. Sleeping through much of the day can also lead to a sense of purposelessness, as well as a pervasive feeling of failure and estrangement from the rhythms of society. I often think of my depressed and daytime sleeping patients as house cats, and I encourage them to try to find their inner dog. Dogs want to be outside, under the big skies, sniffing, playing, exploring, interacting with other dogs, being open to new adventures and experiences. Whereas house cats sleep on and off over the 24-hour cycle, mostly avoiding their species, accepting interactions only on their terms. Now, caveat, I love dogs and cats. I'm not trying to diss cats. I'm just saying we humans are social animals like dogs, and we are at our best when we are outside in the great open spaces, in sunlight, walking around, exploring, wagging our tails, and looking for other friendly dogs to meet up with. This one question, what time do you get up, is an unexpectedly powerful window into psychiatric, medical, and interpersonal health. Because self-care starts with a good night, not day, of sleep. When my patients are getting up with the sunrise or shortly thereafter, their paths forward through the hot coals of depression or PTSD or bipolar disorder are going to be easier. And for those who are up at 3 a.m. or 3 p.m., we got some major work to do because it all starts with sleep. If you like this episode, please share it with anyone else who might find hope or meaning in this story. Check out our website, bftapodcast.com, where you can learn more about us and this project get more information on the treatments mentioned in the stories, as well as additional resources and music credits. You can also email us with comments or story requests. If you have time, please rate us on iTunes as this helps us spread these stories far and wide. Much gratitude to my good friend Chris Johnson, who does our sound. And thank you for listening to Back from the Abyss. May each of you find the strength and support to find your way through the darkness.